This is the SciDev.net podcast for news and views on science and global development. In today's podcast, we look at the Sustainable Development Goals, which are meant to improve living standards all over the world. And we look at why the world's poorest are missing from the picture. Something that we're trying to do globally is to eliminate and eradicate entirely extreme poverty. So that's people living on less than $1.25 a day. Then these are, as I say, are exactly the kind of people that we need to, governments need to be getting to. We hear why decentralisation could be the key to bringing internet access to rural communities in developing countries. We're not trying to set expectations that everyone's going to have always on high bandwidth internet, but that also that the organisation of how you deploy the internet is itself embedded in society. We learn how scientists are trying to measure ecosystems to better understand how nature is useful to humans and why it should be protected. And we discover how MSF has been filling in the blanks in the country's population and geographical maps by arming locals with GPS-enabled smartphones and motorbikes. It's a very accessible and locally appropriate technology that you're using. So if there is availability of GPS smartphones and transport, then there's no limit to what information can be collected. You're listening to the SciDev.net podcast for news and views on science and global development. Now, who are the missing millions and why do they matter? Earlier in May, the Overseas Development Institute released a report that looks at the issue and tries to explain why the world's poorest are often left out of the official statistics that inform policy making. Reporter Kevin Pollock attended the report's launch event and spoke with Elizabeth Stewart, co-author of the study. So this report that you were an author on and that the discussion is about is titled The Data Revolution, Mm -hmm. Finding the Missing Millions. Just wondering who are the missing millions and why do we need to find them? So the report shows that there are 350 million people who are left out of household surveys. And they tend to be from groups who are likely to be the poorest. So it also means that our poverty numbers that we think are pretty sure are actually out. And they could be out by, you know, more than a quarter. They could be more than a quarter wrong. So the kind of people that are left out, they tend to be the poorest, most vulnerable, marginalised groups. So they're either left out by design. Household surveys aren't designed to cover homeless people, the military, surprisingly, people living in institutions, those kind of groups. But also there's another kind of 100 million who are left out in practice because it's actually very difficult logistically for enumerators to reach them. So those could be slum dwellers who are living in very densely kind of compacted environs, people who move around a lot, kind of migrant pastoralist communities, or people who are living in very insecure situations where it's dangerous for somebody to go in and ask those questions. Why it matters about finding them is, is, is very linked to that. If they are the poorest people in our communities, and something that we're trying to do globally is to eliminate and eradicate entirely extreme poverty, so that's people living on less than $1.25 a day, then these are, as I say, are exactly the kind of people that we need to, governments need to be getting to with services, reaching out to with policies to explicitly lift them out of poverty. You mentioned the uh, sustainability development goals. And I was wondering, what impact do um, these data gaps have in the transition now from the UN's Millennium Development Goals in this post-2015 uh, development agenda? Mm. Well, they raise a lot of questions, if you like. The first is, are we able to measure all the things that we know that we need to measure to be able to make progress on? 
are we able to measure all these different indicators on energy security, on um, number of people with access to health services, on the quality of education, so not just kids in schools, but kids actually achieving things in schools. Are we able globally, as a global community, do we have the, do we have the capacity, the finance, the ability to be able to measure them? But I think what's so interesting about data is it's not just about measuring things, it's also allowing you to achieve things, to actually be able to deliver on those goals. So for instance, you can't do a targeted cash transfer program if you don't know where these people are that you're trying to target. You can't deliver even universal services like healthcare, like education, if you don't know what the needs are of certain populations. They may need particular provisions, specific policies or affirmative action to be able to bring them into the fold. And if you don't know who they are, what they look like, what they need, as a government, you can't do that. What are some of the changes that are needed for the success of this kind of data revolution that you're talking about? Mm. Well, I think one point that's interesting to note is that actually it's it's already happening in lots of countries. But um, what's very clear is that you need more investment. It's not a great deal of money, and actually a data revolution will pay for itself. It's about a billion dollars a year you'd need to be able to measure the sustainable development goals. McKinsey's has estimated that the Kenyan government alone is saving a billion dollars a year because it's opened up its procurement system. So it's saving money, having that kind of transparent procurement. The question is where you spend the money. I think there's four key priorities for where the money should be spent. So one is um, investing in civil registration statistics systems. So there are 100 countries in the world who don't have functioning birth and death registries. That's really important for knowing kind of what's happening in terms of your population in your country. The second is um, investing in household surveys, but it's not just in the people that are covered, it's how often they happen. Often there are big gaps between household surveys, so you have a kind of an information drought. They need to happen almost on a continuous basis. The Indonesian government has a continuous survey system. And they need to be asking the right questions. So at the moment, they're not asking the questions that you need to know the answers to, to be able to decide, are you meeting the SDGs or not? Thirdly, you need to invest in improved administrative systems, so things like hospital records, data from that is really important. And finally, you need to invest in the national statistics offices themselves. But I'm wondering, is, is what you're suggesting really feasible? Because, I mean, like the title says, these people are missing. It's mm-hmm. not just that the records haven't been kept at a hospital. They may not go to a hospital. Is it really feasible to, to implement some mm-hmm. of these changes you're talking about? That's a great question. So a lot of this is about politics. You know, the expression, you know, what counts as political, who counts as political, that's completely right. There are some instances where these populations would be hard to count, but if you try to, you can design your survey system in a way that explicitly goes to look for people and explicitly includes certain groups. So you'd need to have bigger sample sizes if you want to find people who are disadvantaged, particularly if they suffer from intersecting inequalities. So if you're looking at someone, for instance, who is both disabled and living in a rural area. But if, if you design a survey to look for people, you have a big enough sample size, and yes, it's expensive, but yes, you can do it. And there are, there are interesting examples of governments who are actively going out to do this. Brazil has a programme called Brazil Without Extreme Poverty, Brazil Sin Miseria, where groups go knocking on you know, houses door to door looking for the poorest people, registering them, meaning they can get access to services, and also trying to connect them with employment guarantee, uh, employment um, generation programs. So if, you, if the political will is there, yes, you can do it. I also think there's, you can um, design a data commons, and the important part of this is that the people who's, to whom the data belongs, i.e. the individual, they benefit from that data. If we're going to have a real revolution, then the people themselves need to see the benefits of it.
So, for instance, if you're giving away some of your health data, the return for, on this for you could be a cure being found to a disease that you have. That was Elizabeth Stewart of the Overseas Development Institute talking to Kevin Pollock at a panel discussion on the data revolution and how to find developments missing millions. Well, Kevin joins us in the studio to tell us more. Hi there, Kevin. Hi, John. Yeah, this concept of the missing millions led to a very interesting discussion about the role of collecting and using data to improve people's lives. Sometimes it seems that development is discussed in the context of business, government, and academia, but in isolation of each other. So it was refreshing to get all three perspectives together in one place. One idea that really stood out to me was the need to push for increased access to broadband internet. Okay, this all sounds like a good idea, but how could all of that work exactly? Well, I wondered that as well and wanted to learn more about how this could be put into practice. So I spoke with John Crowcroft, Professor of Communication Systems at the University of Cambridge, about a project he is working on with the aim of doing just that, his idea is to go away from the current trend of building a few number of big data centers that send and receive information for a lot of people, and instead decentralize the internet with a larger number of more localized servers. I asked him what the issues are with a centralized internet and what advantages a decentralized system could bring. So the, the problem with the centralized side is that obviously if there isn't a path from where the user is sitting right now to that central site, then it's 100% not usable. And of course, there are a small number of these central sites, so there's a reasonably good chance at any given time that some fraction of users can't reach them. Plus, they're not right next door to you, so there are lots, there are lots more components to go wrong. Whereas if you put um, your information on a server in your house or your office uh, or your village or your town, then clearly, uh, you know, if there's a, a disaster or, uh, uh, or some neighboring country has a war and cuts all the fibers or, or there's an attack on something near you, that doesn't impact on you. So, um, so firstly, you potentially have higher availability for your data by putting it near you you actually get better performance as well because it's nearer so then the communication costs are lower and the latency, the delay to reach the data is lower. Uh, you may in fact overall for all the users you might reduce the energy cost as well. Putting everything in big data centers uh, requires lots of cooling for the data centers so even very efficient data centers burn quite a lot of electricity just maintaining the system um, plus an awful lot of the time a lot of the users aren't using stuff in the data center because uh, they're asleep in some other part of the world. So there's a lot of stuff potentially running that's not necessary. And then all the transmission costs of the internet to reach data center that might be a thousand miles away. So this sounds like decentralization could really bring big benefits, but why hasn't it been done before? Well, actually this idea isn't new and was how the internet was designed when it first came into being in the 1960s. With smaller independent defense departments sharing data to form a larger communication network. As the Googles, Apples, and Amazons of the world grew, it became more economical for big servers to store their massive quantities of data together in one place or a few places. But there are still decentralized networks that exist and flourish today. Peer-to-peer you know, -peer file sharing is a decentralized system, and it's used as a highly effective way of doing software distribution. Not, you know, originally, everyone thinks of peer-to-peer -peer as, as copyright theft, but actually, the open source community uses peer-to-peer -peer systems. And actually, it's used by commercial organizations as an efficient way of, of distributing stuff to people. We're interested in using these peer-to-peer -peer structures to provide the uh, a sort of mutual benefit back up. So that rather than 
uh, paying somebody in a central site to use Dropbox or, or Google Drive to back everything up. You just talk to people in two neighboring villages and they're running a server for their local society, which could be to do with the, the church, the temple, or it could be to do with sports, or it could be to do with the local market. It could just be it publishes the price of the goods in the market today, you know, once a week or whatever. And then uh, it keeps a, a copy of your stuff, too. So we think there's ways of doing this that would, would be in the original spirit of the Internet uh, architecturally, you know, the, the design principles uh, and would offer, yeah, potentially very high availability, sort of survivability and lower cost. The Network for Development Lab, or N4D, is based at the University of Cambridge and began by looking for the barriers to providing Internet access to rural parts of Europe. But then we looked at the developing world where it's sort of more clean slate, where, you know, you don't have a bunch of phone lines going to every village. You can't make use of the existing copper or fiber backhaul, but you may be able to build something that is not quite the Internet. If people's expectations are somewhat different, they don't expect anything because at the moment they may may have one cell phone in a village they may have a broadcast tv and one tv screen in a village but you offer something that offers an information retrieval system and maybe a asynchronous way of getting information to other people then that may work very well in fact you can see this that people have built systems out of uh, messaging on phones there are many many successful deployments of, of applications that use sms on phones to to build quite useful things for people who want to find out the market price for their vegetables in three different markets so they can walk to the right one to get the best price or find out the weather prediction so they can decide is it a good day to plant something or not so these will work very well but the question is how how much further could we go if we do something that connects to the internet as needed this project is part of a larger worldwide initiative called Global Access to the Internet for All, or GAIA. One of its main aims is not to simply impose, but to work with local people and communities to help them find solutions to their own communication problems by providing guidance and expertise. There's other interesting aspects to this work, which, which are that we're not trying to set expectations that everyone's going to have always on high bandwidth internet, but that also that the organization of how you deploy the internet is itself embedded in society. So we think that's a really important aspect of how you build a system that we don't parachute it in, so to speak. It, it's not like a top-down, uh, you know, we're the government, we're here to help. There's nothing like that at all. It's, so we, we go and cooperate with local organizations which may in fact not even be an organization, it could just be people. And we see what they need to build the thing they, that they want that does the information services they need. Now, Internet for All sounds great in theory, but is it really necessary for everyone to be connected to the net? Does it really matter? That's a good point. I raised that question with John and asked him whether access to the Internet should be a universal right. I think it should be a universal right. That doesn't mean we impose it on people who don't want it, like I say. It's one of the lowest cost channels for free speech. It does offer opportunities for education, um, health information, and, and ways to create new businesses that may not use the internet, but just learning about the way you might create a new business and so on. So, so you know, there's a entertainment even. There's just a channel that does this quite efficiently. The, the metaphor, you know, of information on a superhighway, I mean, it doesn't have to be a superhighway, but it, it's like a right of way you don't let people build a house and live there if there's no right of way for them to get to the local shops. So it will be a bizarre thing, you know, to, to say that an information network should not afford the same right. Now, of course, you know, there's also 
a cost. It's not free. It's not free to have a road. So, you know, you assume society somehow figures out how to deal with that. It can be made very low cost. That's one of the things that's clear. And it could be that society covers that cost for some people because the benefit to having everyone on the net that wants to be uh, is higher than, the, than that cost. Well, that was John Crowcroft talking to Kevin Pollock about how the decentralised internet could reach the poorest communities that so far have been left offline. Stay with us to hear about measuring the value of natural ecosystems later in the podcast. One of this year's big events for the global community includes the United Nations Conference on Financing for Development from the 13th to the 16th of July, where governments will seek new ways of fostering sustainable and inclusive growth. We've seen how including the missing millions in the picture is no mean feat, but to create a robust framework for sustainability, the environment can't be left out. Our multimedia producer Lou Del Bello caught up with Elizabeth Carabine, researcher at the Overseas Development Institute, and joins us in the studio to tell us more. Hi John. Hi. In the run-up to a post-2015 agenda, measuring what's at stake matters more than ever. So, for example, we have to have an idea of how many people live in poverty to design the right strategies to help them. But we also need to have an idea of the value of a natural ecosystem in order to protect it. Okay, the link between counting the poor and being able to help them is quite clear, but measuring the value of the natural environment, what's the benefit of doing this? Well, for example, you have urban sprawl, but also industrial exploitation for fuel or even for green energy production, or maybe intensive agriculture. If local communities and governments were really equipped with the tools to understand the economic value of a particular ecosystem, they could then make a case for protecting it. But can you really put a price tag on nature? I mean, not everything can be traded for money, can it? Well, exactly. The idea of the so-called ecosystem services is really potentially controversial. So I spoke to Liz Carabine to learn more, and I started by asking, what exactly is an ecosystem service? Ecosystem services is a way of talking about the natural environment that in terms of its utility to humans or its use to humans in their livelihoods or their subsistence or in indeed in protecting them from climate change or extreme weather events. So this is a term that we've begun to use in, in the field. Um, particularly with an economics view of what the worth of ecosystems might be to, to any of these resilience outcomes. So ecosystem services are useful for including and promoting resilience in the picture of sustainable development. I asked Liz to give me a few examples of that. So there's a lot more evidence available for how um, ecosystem services like water have supported both people's um, existence, their, their survival, there's less evidence, but it's growing, about how ecosystems like coral reefs can greatly reduce the impact of storm surges in coastal areas for people living or, or indeed settlements around coasts. There's some evidence from the tsunami, for example, that mangrove forests 
um, greatly reduced the number of deaths um, of, of villages that were protected by mangroves compared to those that, that had got rid of their mangrove forests. So there's evidence like this. A lot of it is from coastal ecosystems, and we know less about other ecosystems like forests or grasslands, but we have case-by-case case evidence of the value that they provide to the people that depend on them. So does that mean that looking at a natural environment from a monetary point of view can enable better management of the natural resources themselves? I put the question to Liz. It certainly can when you are trying to make the case to policymakers or indeed businesses for investing in ecosystems rather than alternatives that might seem more profitable or alternative uses of ecosystems or alternative investments in reduction of risk. For example, building sea walls um, can be quite a clear business case for a government or or construction industry but it's less obvious if you don't have the figures how maintaining mangrove or restoring mangrove forests can achieve the same benefits in economic terms. But at this point I really wanted to know more about how scientists are incorporating non-economic factors such as cultural and historical value into an economic framework so what are the challenges there? Yeah, and a lot of work is done trying to value ecosystem services and break down the components of quite complicated ecosystems or natural environments um, in terms of their value. However, it's very, very difficult. One of the reasons being that there are non-monetary values, so it's hard to quantify these aspects. And secondly, ecosystem services are quite complex. Ecosystems are complex. So there's many ways in which one, one service could be supporting people's livelihoods or people's cultural resilience or people's uh, exposure to risk, for example. That said, that complexity is actually what, the, what I would argue the value of the ecosystem is and how, how they can be effective in ecosystem-based adaptation efforts. Okay, so Elizabeth mentioned adaptation efforts. Can you explain that a bit more? Is this approach also useful in climate change response? Well, it seems natural that in any new effort to achieve sustainability, climate change should be factored in. And Liz explained that better management of ecosystems can bring benefits both in the medium and long term. So this is quite an exciting field for people who've been involved in ecological management for a long time because now we're making the case really that if you preserve ecosystems you'll be accruing benefits in terms of climate change as well. So the examples I gave earlier about mangroves, if you're restoring or protecting mangrove areas, as well as perhaps incorporating more hard infrastructural approaches to risk reduction, you are not only ensuring that the services are those cultural services we referred to or the amenity value are being preserved but you're also um, going to see some real benefits in terms of people protected from storm surge or typhoons and so on. Um, it can also help in adaptation to longer term climate change by providing livelihoods so if people are dependent on let's say um, particular crops for their livelihoods in rural areas then some of those crops won't be won't be um, particularly resilient to climate change in the future, but other ecosystem-based approaches may be. So you'll see efforts around agroforestry or um, conservation agriculture, where where crops are grown with other 
products in mind thinking about adaptation in the future honey for example what are the products that we might sustain our livelihoods in under a changing climate as well and those solutions are provided by the environment and ecosystem services that was Liz Carabine talking to Lou Del Bello about the role of ecosystem services in measuring the usefulness of the natural environment to humans. Well, coming up next, we learn how Ebola-affected countries can be mapped with GPS and with motorbikes. You're listening to the SciDev.net podcast for news and views on science and global development. During the recent Ebola crisis, one of the major stumbling blocks to monitoring affected areas and tracing the contacts of Ebola patients was the hugely inadequate maps of the region. In Sierra Leone, health response teams were forced to rely on population and geographical maps from 2010, which by 2014 were out of date, in some cases missing entirely new villages that had grown up in the interim. SciDev.net journalist Imogen Mathers has been finding out how local teams armed with motorbikes and GPS-enabled smartphones have been helping fill in the gaps in Sierra Leone's maps. She spoke to epidemiologist Laura Nglochlin, recently returned from volunteering for MSF in Sierra Leone, about the organisation's map-making work in the Tonkalili district. Could you tell us a little bit about the MSF mapping project that you've been involved with in Sierra Leone and what needs that was meeting? So I was based in Tonkalili district in central Sierra Leone and an Ebola management centre was opened in December 2014. So typically when a case would arrive at the Ebola management centre, they would give their name, their age and also the village and chiefdom where they'd come from. So if the patient was conscious, we were to get this information. If the patient was unconscious, then you were reliant on the ambulance driver or the nurse. So this is when the problem would arise in terms of response, because if the village name was not familiar to local staff or drivers, then you really were, were reliant on maps. And then if the map also, you couldn't find this location, then you really needed to try and find out more information to try and actually get to that location to, to try and implement some response measures. And with Sierra Leone, uh, maps of Sierra Leone, are there good thorough maps in place? Well, in Tonkalili district, which is an area of around 7,000 kilometres squared, which is a bit larger than Swaziland, it's not a small district and there are over 1,000 villages. And many of these areas are hard to reach because of the terrain. So the maps that we had were kind of based on census data from 2010. It didn't include all the newer satellite villages. So satellite villages being villages that have grown up around the edges of other villages. Yeah, yeah. And more you know, rural areas may have had new villages that also weren't mapped. So in order to get that, we need to try and implement some type of project to try and gather this data. And when we were there, there didn't seem to be other organisations doing that. And in January of 2015, Ivan Gayton came to the centre. Ivan works at the Manson unit with MSF. When Ivan arrived, he had experience doing this when he was in Haiti. So then this is how this all began. Okay, so he used his experience from the earthquake in Haiti applying some of that that learning to this new crisis. Yeah, I think, I mean, when he was in Haiti, I think he he mentioned that he could see that there was a huge gap in trying to locate where the cases were and looking at cluster effects. I think with Ebola, it's it's different to cholera because sometimes Ebola is quite localised within interfamily, but with cholera, if it's from a water source, then you can kind of pinpoint maybe where the infection is spreading. There's no point in doing these type of surveys if it's not going to be available. So that's why uh, he'd used this technology before and then was able to implement this in Sierra Leone. This is just very accessible technology that, you know, can be implemented anywhere. 
And you say that you were working with local people in the map making project. Can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so this just shows how accessible this type of technology is because have people with their smartphones. These are devices that they use every day, so there's no need to train people into how to use these devices. Just train them on how to use the software. So it was a survey that was you design in Excel and then you upload it to a web platform on the Open Data Kit Collect software, which is available on uh, Google Play and it's free. And then from there, you're logged in through the MSF server so you can access the surveys. And then from there, you can just go and collect data. And then also we gave them some training on how to use OpenStreetMap for the Android. So they could look at locations where they are, pinpoint GPS coordinates. So it's a very simple process, one to two hours training, and then the teams are deployed and they go throughout the district surveying. Okay, and they were going on local motorbike taxi services. So the way it was operated was that there was 24 locals hired, 12 of which were Okada drivers, which is the motorbike drivers, and 12 were locals with GPS-enabled smartphones. They were paired together, and the drivers went around the district with the surveyor on the back, and then they just collected the information. There's 11 chiefdoms within Tonkalili district, and they would, amongst themselves, distribute themselves and know where each other was, so they were not repeating data collection. And the people that they were talking to, who were they? You mentioned village chiefs. Yeah, so typically when you are beginning a project or if you go into a new village, you always have to introduce yourself to the village chief. That's a matter of respect. You can't just wander into a village and start doing what you want. So you speak to the village chief, you explain what you're doing. And when it came to Ebola, the village chiefs were very happy to see you there, that you were being proactive and that you know, something was being done. So the surveyors would speak to the village chief and also they would speak to the healthcare workers in the village to locate where the healthcare facilities are and they would uh, collect information about how many households were in the village and the population size in general. So to kind of get rough data population estimates, which is very useful. And was there an issue of people getting around? The road networks in Sierra Leone and particularly rural parts of the country, I imagine, might have presented some challenges. Was that, was that an issue at all? It's certainly challenges if you're in a if you're in a jeep. Yeah, there's some villages that you know you'd have to stop the car and walk four kilometers to get to the village. But on a motorbike, it's much much easier. Also, the advantage is that these Okada drivers they drive these motorbikes every day, so they're familiar with the terrain and they can get around no problems. So it was a huge advantage. They were able to survey 950 villages in two weeks, so it was a huge accomplishment. And then what about uploading the information? Was that, was that straightforward? Was internet reliable? When they returned the evening, you could just sync with the server in the Ebola Management Centre office in Magbaraka. So that was no, no issues. That's one of the other things is that these softwares could be used offline. So there was no need for, for having internet in the field. And what about the validation process for the data that was gathered? Yeah, it's important that this is done. So based on pre-existing data that we had from uh, the 2010 census and also OpenStreetMap contributions. We were able to um, compare the data that we collected to what was pre-existing and there was a 5% disagreement, so it showed a high level of data quality that had been collected. And what about, what about sharing with um, national governments or local governments in the area? Is that, is that an important part of your work? I mean, it's very, you have to share this type of information because it's, it's vital for response. So this information was shared with the National Ebola Response Committee and also OpenStreetMap have used the validated data for their mapping. So it's available online. So there's like a certain section of um, Sierra Leone that has quite a lot of data information. So that's Tanklili District, yeah. And what about the next steps for the mapping project? What are the lessons learned and how can you use those in new settings perhaps? So this was conducted in Tonkalili district and you know there would be a view to carrying this out in other districts in Sierra Leone to get more comprehensive data. This is technology and methods that can be applied anywhere. It's a very accessible and locally appropriate technology that you're using so 
if there is availability of GPS smartphones and transport, then there's no limit to what information can be collected. That was Imogen Mathers talking to MSF's Laura McLaughlin about map making in Ebola-stricken Sierra Leone. Well, that's it for this month. From me, John Escombe, and from the team in London, have a very good month. Stay with us for more news and analysis on the world of science and development. Until next time, bye-bye.